I want to today, as I was looking at Colossians, and we're in Colossians chapter 1, I wanted today to address what I think is a, a growing, extremely dangerous and deadly disease that's running rampant in the evangelical church in America. And I think it's been running rampant for a few decades now, and I think it has just been elevated. At first glance, I think it seems harmless, but any kind of disease can infect an entire community, and it, it can spread kind of like a virus. We've been watching that this year. We've been watching a physical virus spread. Well, there's a spiritual virus that spread. I would call this the virus of practicality, and it's spreading like wildfire in American churches. Here's how it works. Instead of calling people to faith, and repentance and submission to the supremacy of Christ, many of us tell people that Jesus just kind of wants to give them a happy and joyful life. It's been preached, it's been taught, it's been shared one-to-one -one for the last several years. Well, you just come to Jesus and everything will be okay. Your marriage will be good and, and your job situation will be okay and stress-free life will happen and, and just in Christ everything will be all perfect and all great and, and everything will be well, taken care of. Now, while Jesus will certainly change our lives, he certainly changes marriage, and he certainly helps, I think, stress levels when we, when we bow to him, what we must move away from is what can Jesus do for me to am I living underneath his lordship? And I think the disease is that too much we look at what will Jesus do for me if I trust him, if I give my life to him, if I want to follow him versus going, no, what will my life be like if I live underneath his lordship? What has happened in America is we have simply just added Jesus to a list of all this other kind of stuff that we do. And Jesus, he's okay, he's good, he's fine. Church, hey, that's okay, that's good. But we don't want to just add him to our lives. We want to allow him to run our lives. In an American church, too much, we're like, well, I have my job. I have my wife or my husband. I have my kids. I have my social life. I have my activities. And I have Jesus. And he's just one of many things that we are involved with. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Much of the false teaching that took place in the church in Colossae had to do with the minimizing of Jesus. Many people thought he was important, but he wasn't essential. And I just wonder today, we keep hearing that word essential, an essential worker. How many in our society today would say Jesus is essential? Yeah, he's a good man. Oh, I'm glad he, you know, has the church. Oh, good religion, good faith, whatever, people. But is he essential to this world and to our lives. See, they had given him place in their lives, but not recognizing that he demands first place. And I think all of us can get guilty of that, where Jesus has part of my life, but he doesn't have the first part, where he's, he's first on the radar, and then everything else aligns underneath Jesus. Many times, he's just one of many things that I do in my life and that I've partaken in my life. Jesus was prominent to them, but he certainly was not preeminent or supreme. As we study Colossians 1 this morning, beginning in verse 15, we come to what's known as the pinnacle of Christianity. And here's the main idea today. Jesus is supreme over all. 
We must get that. And that's what Paul wanted the church in Colossae to understand. Jesus is supreme over all. In the first few verses, 15 through 17, we're going to see how he's supreme over creation. Verses 18 through 23, how he's supreme over the new creation. In other words, he's supreme over the cosmos and he's supreme over the church. He is Lord of everything he's made and he's Lord of everyone who he has saved. But for too much, and they were struggling with it because they were dealing with the false teaching creeping in the church. They were saying, well, you can believe in Jesus, but you need to believe this and this and this, and you need to do this, this, and this. And it's not really changed in our society today. So let's begin with this idea of Jesus is supreme over creation. The passage is one of the strongest in Scripture that relates to the superiority of Jesus. If you are here today, and you're on a journey, and you're on a search, and you're trying to understand Jesus, this is a great passage because Paul is going to lay out for us a very clear picture of who Jesus is. If you've been in Christ for a long time, this is a great passage because it reminds us of our belief, and hopefully we grab a little bit more and go, that's the Jesus I serve, and I want to serve him faithfully. Look at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul starts to lay out for the church in Colossae, for us today, here's who Jesus is. He begins in verse 15, which is the very beginning, with just saying, Jesus is God. Paul doesn't mince words here. It's Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Images conveyed meaning way beyond what we can describe. For instance, this wedding band right here that I wear. First service, I could get it off, and now I can't. This wedding band that I wear that on my ring, on my finger, and many of you wear one, that is an image that 26 years ago I tricked her to say yes. You know what I'm talking about. That's an image pointing to the fact that there is a marriage, that there is love. The image of the American flag flying over ground zero ignites feelings of patriotism and sadness and maybe even anger in our hearts. For some right now, the American flag says, well, I'm on this side of the political scope. For others, oh, the American flag says, you're on that side, and so I don't like you. The American flag has image with an image has certain feelings and thoughts. As powerful as these images are, they're simply representations of something that is much a deeper reality. The ring doesn't make me married. Rather, it's a symbol that I am married. Or the American flag doesn't make me an American, but it's a powerful symbol that represents what our country is about. L listen, you, you got to get this today. Jesus is just not a symbol of God. He is God himself. And for too long, it's been taught that he's a symbol or he's just an image of of God. No, He is God. The word, the word image in the Greek language refers to likeness, manifestation, or replica. In that culture, the image was a die or a stamp that could make exact reproductions. Passports in Paul's day had a section called distinguishing marks, which described something about the person that set them apart from everyone else. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He's a precise copy because he's God himself. He both represents and manifests God in the world. You say, well, where does Paul get that from? Well, other scriptures teach that principle. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God, but God, the one who only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. 
That phrase, made him known, means that Jesus declares or literally exegetes to the world that God the Father, what he's really like. John 14, 9, Jesus revealed this about himself. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He's like, you see me, you've seen God. That's what he's saying. In a parallel passage, Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Not a partial, the exact representation. 2 Corinthians 4 also refers to Christ as the image of God. It has been said that Jesus is God with skin on. I think that's a good word picture. Because that's exactly what it is. Jesus is God as a person. So Paul says he's God. He also is the unique son of God, the second part of 15. He's not only God, he's the firstborn over all creation. Now Jehovah's Witnesses believe that this verse teaches that Jesus was a created being and therefore he's not God. Well, the phrase firstborn is most frequently translated as a heir or an owner. In the ancient times it meant the ranking one or the supreme one. Jacob was not firstborn, but he was an heir, strongly supported in Psalm 89, where we read that God appointed King David as his firstborn, even though he was the youngest of eight brothers. So this verse concludes by saying that David will be the most exalted of the kings of earth. In other words, the firstborn, it, it, therefore, is not a title of honor, position, or chronological order. It, it is, it is a, it's a relationship. He says, you're firstborn. He's the creator of all things. Jesus is the image of God. He's exalted over one creation because he's the creator. So we don't understand, we don't misunderstand what firstborn means. In verse 16, Paul explains that all things were created in, through, and for Christ. Look at 16. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. In other words, Jesus is not just a mere man with skin on. He is the creator of all things, those things we can see and those things that we cannot see. Now, it's kind of a mind-boggling concept. Wait a minute, Jesus who is wandering the earth as a human with skin on is the same person who created the earth? Yes. Paul's like, don't confuse the situation. See, because the false teachers, what they taught was that the physical world was evil. They thought that God himself would not have been created it. They reason that if God, that if Christ were created God, he would be in charge of only the spiritual world, not in terms of the physical world. But Paul explained that all thrones, all dominions, all principalities and powers on heaven and earth, both the visible and invisible world, they're under the authority of Christ. Because why? Because he created them. Four classifications are used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the world of both holy and evil, sp evil spirit beings. And since the Colossians gave undue pr prominence to angels, Paul here quickly puts everything under the rule of Christ. Just ha Jesus has no rival. He's like, listen, nothing. The, the verse also refutes false teaching that Christ was one of many intermediaries. And the angels were not to be worshipped. The highest angelic principle princes and subjects to Jesus Christ, whether they, they were the seraphim or whether they were cherubim or whether they were demons or whether they were Satan himself, he's like, Jesus is Lord of all. Not some things, all things. And in Paul's letter right here, he's like, you got to notice this. you got to see this. you got to see, and he's naming everything in this created world. 
Jesus is not only the creator, he provides the purpose for all his creation. All things were created by him and for him. That's crazy thing. You mean God, Jesus, he created everything and he created them for him? Yes, yeah, see, the goal of creation is to glorify Christ. Revelation 4 in the New Living Translation puts it this way, for you created everything and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. You mean God created you and me for his pleasure? Yep. God created the rivers for his pleasure? Yep. God created the animals for his pleasure? Yep. God created the oceans for his pleasure and the mountains and the trees and the flowers for his pleasure? Yep. He created it all for his pleasure. So he's God. He's the son of God. He created all things. And he's the one who holds all things together. Paul wants us to not miss this. See, as our country continues to be in a mess, it's important that God, that, that Jesus is the one who holds all things together. And we must not forget that. And I think this word that Paul writes to the church in Colossae is so much needed here in October of 2020. Colossians 1.17, he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, Jesus existed before everything else. And to hold together means to prevent something from falling into complete chaos. Christ before all things, both in time and in rank. He's not only the creator of the world, he's also the cohesion that holds it all together. By him everything came to be, and by him everything continues to be. Hebrews 1.3 reminds us that he holds everything together by his powerful word. If he were to remove his sustaining power, then everything would dissolve into disorder. And sometimes we stop and go, are we not already there? See, right now it seems like people are just wigging out, freaking out, falling off the deep end in our country over the political, over the moral, over the, the physical, over the sickness going on that we find ourselves in. But i got to tell you, we don't have to wig out. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to become unplugged because Jesus holds it all together and he's keeping it from falling apart. And you say, Brian, wait a minute. Have you seen what I've seen lately? I have. You know how we trust that he's still holding all together? It's called faith. That's how we walk through this world and go, all right, Lord, I don't understand it. I see with my eyes a political mess, a financial mess, a spiritual mess, um, um, a sickness mess. I see this world, it seems like falling apart. But Paul says, no, he's actually holding it together. In other words, imagine what it would be like if he wasn't holding it together. Imagine what it would be like. He holds everything together by His Word and His power. Remember, there is no crisis in heaven. and He'll be exalted in all nations. So Jesus is supreme over creation. He's God. He's the unique Son of God. He's the creator of all things. He holds it all together. And then Paul turns a corner beginning in verse 18. He's like, listen, not only is He supreme over creation, He's supreme over His new creation. New creation. The focus shifts from the old natural creation to the new spiritual creation. The creating God is also the reconciling God. He gives us the opportunity to be right with God. We see first that He is the head of the church, verse 18. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything He might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Paul uses a personal pronoun here that's very emphatic it literally means he himself is the head now the word head means that jesus is the authority or he is the source for the church we can relate to that 
The head gives the body the ability to produce growth, and without it, the body dies. Many churches, I think, seem to forget this. And I think it's part of the disease I've brought up here as we started today. See, if Jesus Christ is not supreme in a church, then there is no church. You're just a group of people who got together to hang out and spend some time together. But when Jesus is the head of the church, that's when we get our direction from. See, that was part of the trouble in Colossae. They had lost connection with the head of the church. They had lost connection to Christ, and as a result, they were experimenting with all kinds of false doctrines, things that you should believe and things that you should do that don't align with Scripture. And Paul's like, don't take your eye off the head. Don't forget about the head. See, Jesus is the head of Centerpoint Christian Church. Not Brian Bolton, not the elders, not some ministry leaders, not some of you who give money to the offerings. None of us are the head. He's the head. We are his servants. Jesus Christ supreme over his church, and we bow before his authority. And Paul's trying to get the church in Colossae to understand it, wants us to understand that, because Jesus is the beginning, which means he's the source. The word has two meanings, to rule and to begin. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will what? I will build my church. I will build my church. Jesus says it's his church. The church is a creation of Christ, and we must follow its lead. He is the firstborn from among the dead, signifying that as the supreme one, his resurrection is a guarantee that he too will rise again, and we will rise with him. I love verse 19, though, in Colossians. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. It gives it gives God the Father great joy and pleasure to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. It, it greatly pleased the Father the Son to have, have preeminence over creation and the church. But there's some significant truths just in verse 19. The fullness of God dwells in him. Not around him, not upon him, not under him. Rather, the fullness of God was what? In Jesus Christ. The fullness of God. God's deity. In other words, deity is wandering on earth. The word dwell means to take up residence and points to the incarnation. It's used in a sense of a permanent dwelling place that reminds the believers of God's desire to choose a place for His name to dwell in the Old Testament. Colossians 2.9, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in what? In bodily form. So when Jesus comes to the earth as a man, God came to the earth as a man. Get your head wrapped around that idea for a moment. It's quite mind-boggling, really. The phrase, all his fullness, is a technical term in the vocabulary of the Gnostic false teachers. It means the sum total of all divine power and attributes. Paul uses the term eight different times in Colossians to show the believers that Jesus is the fullness of God and no one else. The fact that it pleased the Father to have all his fullness dwell in Christ is proof that Jesus Christ is God. And so Paul's like, listen, Jesus is over all the earth, and Jesus is over the new creation. And then he turns a corner into the basic gospel message in verse 20. Paul describes the work of Jesus, this whole idea of reconciling people to himself. Because as people come to a saving faith in Christ, they're reconciled to Christ through his blood. They become members of his church, of which he's the head. Look at verse 20. Begins with a general statement about reconciliation. It says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
See, the false teachers in Colossae, they were teaching people they could get closer to God by the worship of angels, by keeping certain rules and certain regulations, that, that they couldn't promise total, complete reconciliation. But if you want to get closer to God, then you follow these rules and you do these regulations and you do that. That'll make you closer to God. Never a complete closeness. Never totally reconciled, but you'll feel closer. Unger's Bible Dictionary defines reconciliation this way. He says the restoration of friendship and fellowship after estrangement. It also means to change thoroughly from one position to another. When were we totally estranged from God? Happened in the garden. When sin entered the world. And reconciliation, it's the change thoroughly from one position to another. It's the restoration of a friendship and a fellowship. So we were estranged, but God says, I'm going to give you Jesus. I'm going to come to the earth. Our reconciliation happens when someone or something is completely altered and adjusted so that the relationship can be a relationship of peace and unity and begin with oneness. And so the estrangement is gone and unity is back together. Paul establishes then four elements of this reconciliation of Christ in this one verse. The focus is what? To reconcile to himself. The focus has always been that. He wants a relationship with us. He wants us back with him. It's the initiative and action that come from him. He's like, I want you to be reconciled. I want you to be right with me. I want us to be in unity. I want us to be in peace. The scope is all things. Reconciliation involves the whole universe. Even this earth is going to be repaired one day. This earth is going to be reconciled. The result is peace. Through Jesus, our hostility with God can come to an end. He's like, I'm going to provide the bridge. Through Jesus. The means is through his blood shed on the cross. He's, I'll provide the way. Who's going to be the way? It's going to be Jesus. He's going to die on a cross. Because salvation comes only through sacrificial death of Jesus on a cross as our sin is paid for. And Paul's like, don't buy into all the other stuff they're telling you you need to do or you must believe. Colossians 1 then moves from a general to a specific. Paul reminds us that we were what we were like when we experienced peace with God. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That verse is just packed with reminder and hope. Alienated means to be estranged or withdraw, to make indifferent or averse where love or friendship before existed. I mean, we use the word alien to refer to strangers or outsiders. Apart from God's grace, all of us are estranged from God. And Paul's like, listen, you used to be alienated. You were enemies, he said. We're not just alienated. The Bible says we are actively hostile. That's an enemy. Our minds were, our, our minds were at war with God. In Romans 8, Paul says, For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws. It never will. Our behavior was evil. Bad thoughts often lead to bad behavior. What's inside will come out. Paul's intention is not to dwell on what they were before Christ and just draw their minds the negative uh, thoughts. God took the initiative then in verse 22 to extend His grace. He's like, let's just remember, let's not forget who we were. We're alienated, we're hostile, we're enemies. That's what our life was. And then he turns to verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Notice that it was Christ's 
physical body that reconciled us. The false teachers in Colossae denied that Jesus had, a, Jesus had a real human body. See, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Jesus was both God and man. 1 Peter chapter 2, He Himself bore our sins on a tree, that's a cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds, we are healed. Wounds only happen to a physical body. By his wounds we are healed. See, the purpose behind the pleasure of the Father and the reconciliation of the Son is to present saved sinners in heaven for all eternity. That phrase present was used when someone inspected a potential sacrifice to God before offering it to him. Paul even says, my goal is to present people perfect in Christ. We'll see that a little bit later at the end of chapter 1. It's the same word used in Romans 12 when referring to the Christian presenting his body to God as a living sacrifice. The word was also used as an individual would make a, close, uh, make a case to, to, to God that I'm just before you, God. It's, it's, uh, it's a cleansing. It's, it's a cleaning that we are presented what? Perfect in Christ because of what? The blood of Christ. See, because of what Jesus did on the cross. His sacrifice both his sacrifice and justifier of our sins can be forgiven, can be declared righteous before a holy judge. Because what he did on the cross. Paul's emphasis on our holy standing before God, it's a direct attack on false teachers, though. See, they promised a kind of perfection for those who had secret and, and mystical knowledge. Paul's saying, you already have a perfect standing in Christ. You're already holy in His sight. You're already without blemish and free from accusation. Why seek it anywhere else? Because the false teachers were coming in and they were being taught things that were not real and, and not accurate. And Paul's like, don't go for that stuff. Don't go for the lies. Let's finish by looking at the last part of verse 23. He says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This could be translated, if indeed you continue in the faith, and I believe that you are doing so. In other words, Paul's encouragement, if you continue, and I believe you are continuing, this is what you have. Colossians 3.1, since then you have been raised with Christ. He's reminding them, you are in Christ, you've been raised with Christ. Paul's using an architectural image here, established and firm and not moved. The town of Colossae was located in a region known for earthquakes, and the, and the word translated move can mean earthquake-stricken. In other words, it was greatly protected from earthquake as how strong the house could be built. And just as a house that is firmly set on a foundation will not move, so too, if you are truly saved and you're truly building your life on a foundation of Jesus, then you continue in your faith. It's kind of like what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. For everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who has built his house in the sand. Paul's like, you've heard these words, you believed in them. Let them be your rock. Let them be your foundation. So the supreme question of life. If we understand that Jesus is supreme over creation and supreme over the new creation, we understand that he's provided Jesus the, the death, the burial, and resurrection, then there's a supreme question. And there's seven characteristics that I just went through. You may not realize we hit seven characteristics of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. 
He's the firstborn over all creation. He created all things. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. He has the fullness of God dwelling in him. He's reconciling all things to himself. We see these seven characteristics of Jesus. That's the Jesus. That's the God who we worship. Because of his supremacy over all things, I think all of us must answer the question this morning then, is Jesus supreme in my life? Or am I buying into the disease that's attacking the American church today where he's just part of my life? There's a big difference. If he's just part of my life, just draw a circle around your life and put everything in it. Put mom, put dad, put family relationship, put your job in there, put money, put finances, put uh, your neighbor relationships, put everything in the middle of that circle, and you put Jesus in the church and you put it all in the circle and you say, you know what, we're all in this happy circle together. We're all just functioning within this circle. But if he's really supreme, you don't live in a circle. You live in a hierarchy where you say, Jesus, you're at the top in my life, in my job, in my finances, in my career, and in my marriage, and my kids, and everything else aligns underneath saying, we look up to him and say, Jesus, what do you want in my life? You're supreme. You're Lord. You're in charge. So I used to encourage people in the years ago in, in ministry, I used to say, you need, you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. That's the exact terminology. You have a conversation with somebody, I say, you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. And then I learned the scripture. I knew the scripture, but it really jumped out at me that, that we don't make him Lord of our life. Only God has done that. And it says in Acts 2.36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So in other words, he's already Lord. And he's already Christ. And we don't make him that. God made him that. We have a choice. Do I submit to his lordship? Will I accept His Lordship in my life? Will I surrender to His Lordship? That's the choice we have. John MacArthur hits it on the head when he says, the biblical mandate for both sinners and saints is not to make Christ Lord, but rather to bow to His Lordship. He is ever and always Lord, whether or not anyone acknowledges His Lordship or surrenders to His authority. So true. So true. Paul Harvey some years ago during his New Day broadcast, reminded his listeners that Billy Graham's words were heard all over the world when he spoke at the National Cathedral. Mr. Harvey uh, then quoted from the book of Daniel and the Gospel of Mark, saying the Gospel would be preached to the whole world and then the end would come. He then paused and said this, to some of you, this brings great comfort. To others of you, it's not so comforting. You can make it so. To some of you, this brings great comfort. The end is going to come one day. To some, that's great comfort. I'm ready for the end to come. Whether the end is now or the end that Jesus brings back, I'm okay because I know heaven's my future. So that's comforting. To others, you, it's not so comforting because I'm not really sure. The Lord returns, or if I were to check out of this world, I'm not sure about my future. And so it's not so comforting if I'm not sure where my future is at. He supposed, but you can make it so. You can make it comforting. He's referring to submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, accepting His authority in your life. See, some in this room, you're kind of in that spot. Some of you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Some maybe come here week in and week out, and you're like, oh, I kind of hang around here. Maybe I come because my wife brings me or my husband brings me. Some of you are, are, are kids in here, and you haven't made the decision yet. Some of you have never surrendered your life to Christ. Today could be that day. 
Today could be that day where you say, I'm no longer alienated. I'm no longer separated. I'm now united. I've been reconciled in God. Say, so how do I do that? You put your faith in Jesus Christ. You repent of your sins. You gave your life to Christ. So I want to do that. I want to I I follow in that step. Here in a few moments, we're going to worship. We're going to have communion. I want to encourage you to go to the cross. You say, I want to put my faith in Christ. If you're online with us today and you say, hey, I want to do that, then I would encourage you to write a note on that or send us a private message. Say, I want to talk about putting my life in Christ. It would help you in that journey. But many in this room and probably many that are listening, you say, I've done that one time or another. I know I was 11 years old when I put my faith in Christ. I gave my life to Jesus and followed him in the, in the watery grave of baptism. I was 11 years old, but from 11 until many years, and sometimes I still struggle with it, he was not prominent or preeminent. He was just part of my life. And he doesn't want to just be prominent. He wants to be preeminent. He wants to be supreme. And for many in this room today, we could ask the question, where is Jesus really in my life? Is he really supreme? I ask you to do some business with God today. Don't just add Jesus to your life. That is the, the false teaching that has crept in the in American church. Oh, you just add Jesus to part of your life. It's time to surrender completely. It's time to say, I'm all in. It's time to say, 100%, God, you get all of me. Not part of me, not, not just, a, not just a 75% of me, not 80% of me, not 90%. God, I'm, I want you to have all of me. And so you surrender your life to him, and you can do that sitting in a chair you're at. Today could be a day I draw a line in the sand. And for taking communion, Lord, I'm making a new commitment. For some, it may say, I need some help on this journey. We're going to have a few people at the foot of the cross who love to meet with you, pray with you, talk with you, help you take those steps of faith. Let me close with Philippians 2. I think it's so fitting. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow to the lordship of Jesus because he is Lord. He's Lord of creation. He's Lord of his church. He's Lord of you and me. The question is, are we going to allow him to be Lord? Are we going to surrender to his lordship? Bow your heads.